The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I love the psychology of poker. Now, I know you're not supposed to talk about poker at church because there's a whole gambling thing and, you know, whatever. But I love poker. And um, it, it's interesting to me. I, I grew up playing it. My dad, matter of fact, he had this, this uh, it was a leather hand-sewn pouch. And he would take all of his silver coins, nickels, dimes, and quarters, and sometimes half dollars, and he would shove them in that pouch. And that was his poker pouch. And about every three months, he'd get together with the guys, and they would play poker. And I just remember thinking, that is so cool. You know, me and my brother, we would imitate the, the adult men playing poker you know, at the house. And then when I got old enough, we played together as well. But I, I love how you have to watch the people around you and to try and guess by their actions and by their micro expressions, by reading the way that they handle the cards, how you have to kind of guess where it is that they're headed and how good their hand is. And you're making bets with, with poker chips, not ever sums of money because that would be unholy. Uh, yet you have to make these bets based upon what you think is happening in the players around you. And behind the fan of cards held in each hand is somebody trying to work out how to present themselves to the rest of the table. And everybody else is trying to read it. I just, I love that setting. It's art and it is science. Now the science part, of course, is, is playing uh, the probability. You are you're remembering the cards. You're trying to figure out how many of them are left and you're, 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 you're doing calculations. That's the science part. But the art part is being able to read humans. It's the ability to read the room and to read the people in it. And then there's this thing that you can do. And perhaps you've heard of it. It's called bluffing. Ever try and bluff during a game of poker? Ever have that moment where, where you have absolutely nothing in your hand? It's, it's less than nothing. But you try and make it look like you do, right? And, and so there's several ways that you can do that. One is that you sort of flash a grin at your hand like, ooh, <laughs> right? Another way is that you bet big and, and, and you, you, you put out a, a large bet that says to everybody, I'm very confident in what I have right now. And you're trying to spook everybody else off. You're hoping that people will read your actions, read the, the stuff that you're doing and go, oh, he must have a really good hand and they'll all fold and you'll never have to show your cards. That's really what it is that you're betting on. So you, you flash a smile at your hand so that others can see you grinning. You, you bet large enough to intimidate those around you into folding. You try and look as confident as you can and hope that everyone else has little worth betting on and that you can take the prize, the pot, at the end. But then there comes the moment of truth. There comes that moment where someone calls your bluff. Maybe they've got a good hand. They, they feel pretty confident in the strong hand that they're playing. 
And when your bluff is called, you have to lay all your cards out on the table, and what you have is revealed in that moment. And the person sitting across from you, they play their hand as well, and what they have is revealed at the same moment. Now, here's the thing about bluffing. Imagine for a moment that you had this superpower, like, like Superman, and you're sitting at the card table, and you're, you're, you're watching everybody, but you can see through the cards, and you can see what everybody is holding. Are you still going to be tempted to bluff? Probably not. I mean, if you can see who's actually got a good hand, there's no way you're going to bluff, right? You don't bluff when you can see all the cards. You just don't. It doesn't make any sense. Somebody's got a better hand than you, you don't play it. It's that simple. Well, in a way, this is kind of what's happening in our passage today. This, there is this prideful king, Belshazzar, who's, who's boasting big things. But God is quite literally going to show his hand. I don't know if you saw what I did there, but I worked on that since Tuesday. God is going to show his hand to Belshazzar. This week, as we look at Daniel 5, we encounter a character that's new to us. For the previous chapters in the book of Daniel, we've been dealing mostly with uh, a, a king named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And we've been tracking his story and his encounters with God that produced in him a, a deep humility and even a confession of faith from the king. Through God's work in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he becomes one of the only Gentiles that contributes or, or writes uh, some of the words in the Old Testament scriptures. He, he wrote all of chapter 4 in the book of Daniel. And so we see that Nebuchadnezzar has, has had an encounter with God which has produced in him a tremendous humility and even this, this confession of faith. Matter of fact, perhaps you'll remember the story that we just recently went through, how that the king, when he was in his, in his palace, he boasted, he looked at everything he made, and he said, oh man, look at what my hands have made. And God humbled him immediately, and he, he, he grew out his hair, he lost his mind, he grew out his hair, and it looked like feathers. You think about like dreadlocks, just matted feathers coming down his fingernails and his toenails grew out like claws and he wandered around the palace eating grass like an ox. That's what happened in response to his pride. And after seven times had passed and the judgment of God came to an end, his mental faculties came back and Nebuchadnezzar wrote chapter 4 of Daniel to proclaim how God had humbled him. This is how he opened and closed the chapter. If you just look back one chapter from Daniel chapter 5 to Daniel chapter 4, take a look at the first three verses there where it says this. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is him writing, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures 
from generation to generation. Here you have this king who now proclaims that God's kingdom will outlast his. He agrees with God. He's humbled. Then at the very end of the chapter, the end of this section that he he wrote, uh, take a look at verse 34. He says this, And at the end of days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. So he came out of that, the losing his mind uh, punishment from God. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Notice his posture change here. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then he goes on to say, at the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and all his ways are just. And, and I want you to underline this, I want you to take note of this. And... Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now in this chapter, there stands, in chapter 5, the the chapter we're going to be looking at, there stands the contrast of a prideful king, Belshazzar, who does not learn from the lessons of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's not only humbled, but he comes under the temporal judgment of God in this life. We're going to look at the first half of the chapter uh, this week, and then we'll finish the story uh, next week. So for those of you who like to take notes, I want to give you some thought folders to, to grab a hold of. The title of the message, the point that we're climbing towards is this, fold before God shows his hand. Fold before God shows his hand. Verses 1 through 4, prideful offenses against God. We see that in Belshazzar. Verses 5 through 9, fearful confrontation with God. Verses 10 to 12, an unexpected reminder of God. And then in verses 13 to 16, a rude request of God's servant. So prideful offenses against God, fearful confrontation with God, unexpected reminder of God, and a rude request of God's servant. Now, as we dive into the chapter, it's important for me to give you a little bit of historical context. So I know some of you guys, as soon as you start hearing history and names and everything, you just immediately your brain kind of goes mush and you tune out. Just hang with me. It's important. It's going to lay a foundation so that you can understand some of the nuances of the text here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar reigned from 605 to 562 BC. He had a relatively long 43 continuous years of rule. But there were successive kings that came after him. So there was Nebuchadnezzar, and then there was also his son, the evil Merodach. 
and then Nero Gleaser, his brother-in-law. And then Nero Gleaser, after him, came Labashi Marduk. And after Labashi Marduk came a guy named Nabonidus. And Nabonidus had a son named Belshazzar, who we're going to be talking about. Okay, so you see, why do we care about those names? Listen, in a six-year period of time, all of those kings made their way through the kingdom. In the first two years, there were two assassinations, and the first two guys fell. And then the guy who assassinated the first, or the second guy, uh, he lasted for about four years, and then he, then he died, and his son took it over. And his son lasted only about two to three months as king before he was assassinated by Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus. Okay, so there's, there's the background. A lot of changing of hands, lots of power, but this is all happening in a relatively short amount of time. Now, Nabonidus rules for quite some time. He rules until 539 B.C., but why am I telling you this? Why is this important? Because today, as we look at the story of Nabonidus, we're going to see Belshazzar, his son, trying to prove himself as a king, even though a lot of people feel that he's illegitimate. And we need to understand, the second reason is we need to understand the fact that Belshazzar was a power-hungry, prideful, wannabe king who was left in charge when his father went away on a long journey and wasn't around to occupy the throne. So there's Belshazzar in a nutshell. Now, we know from history that Nabonidus gained power by assassination. And there's a, there's a scholar named Paul Allen Ballou, who's a Canadian Assyriologist, um, and he suggests that the leader of the assassination plot against the previous Babylonian king, Labashi Marduk, was none other than Belshazzar himself. And he presents evidence showing that Belshazzar profited financially by the previous king's death, but also that he purposefully installed his aged old father, Nabonidus, as king in order to be able to inherit the throne because he thought, Dad's going to knock off anytime soon. He's going to die soon and then I'll get the kingdom, right? And so evidently he reasoned that his father would soon die and he would become the new ruler. So as this chapter unfolds, we'll see that the vi this is the very last night of Babylonian rule. This party that is about to unfold before us is the last night that Babylon will still be a ruling authority. The same night that this event takes place is the night that the Medes and the Persians would conquer Babylon and take power in fulfillment of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember the dream that he had with the head of gold, the, the arms and chest made of silver? That was the Medo-Persian Empire. They're going to invade this very night at this moment right now. And God is fulfilling his promise to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's a, there's a guy named Xenophon, uh, which is not important to remember his name, but he's an ancient mercenary and a historian. And he was also one of Nabonidus's uh, uh, opponents, right? He, worked, he was a, a soldier in the Medo-Persian army. And he wrote down in one of his journals that one of Nabonidus's governors, a guy who his name is Go, uh, Gobrius, also called 
Ugbaru, great names here, very important to remember them. Uh, he defected to, to Cyrus's army, and he helped lead the Medes and the Persians into Babylon. So this defector, under Nabonidus' rule, led the army of the Medes and Persians into conquer Babylon. But why did he do that? Well, it turns out that uh, Gabrius, or Ugbaru, uh, he had a son who went on a royal hunting trip with Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, in a fit of jealousy, killed him while they were hunting. And so this guy who defected, defected because nobody would deal with Belshazzar, this spoiled brat of a son, who was the king's prodigy. And two historical records tell us that Gobrius uh, led the Medo-Persian troops into the city and then into the palace the night that Babylon fell. And then he and his soldiers overpowered the king of Babylon, who was hiding with a knife to try and defend himself, and they killed him right there in the palace after the party was over. And so Gobrius then avenged his son's murder. It's also interesting to note that Xenophon, who wrote about Belshazzar, called him the wicked king. The wicked king. So here's, here's the point. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Remember, remember when Nebuchadnezzar said that? Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And here's this proud king. We're going to see his undoing, the judgment of God. Now, one of the things to keep your eye on in this chapter is that the way that Daniel describes Belshazzar as he writes about this, this story here, there's almost no good quality that is highlighted about Belshazzar. In contrast to his predecessor, remember, who Daniel spoke very highly of. Remember, Daniel, when he had to bring a bad prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, oh, don't let this be true of you. Let it be true of your enemies. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, they were friends. They liked each other. They had rapport with one another. But this, this king gets no positive comments uh, from Daniel. Uh, Belshazzar is seen as weak as unfit to lead, and unlike his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed cities, who, who won battles, carried off plunder, built cities, and made mighty statues, uh, built the wonders of, of royal Babylon, the only thing Belshazzar was good for was throwing a party. That was about it. Belshazzar was not respected even by his own people. Matter of fact, we're told that when the Medes and Persians invaded Babylon, that the city was taken without really any conflict. They came in, they went directly to the palace, they killed the king, and everybody went and said, oh, I guess you're in charge now. We're glad to be rid of that last guy. Not well liked. So Belshazzar was not respected by even his own people. So now let's start looking at the scriptures here and let's let this story sort of unfold before our eyes. In verse 1 of chapter 5, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. But Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines 
that they might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, in verses 1 through 4, we see the prideful offenses against God by King Belshazzar. The recounting of this story opens with this proxy king, Belshazzar, throwing a massive party for his lords. Now, something to keep in mind is the fact that at the exact moment that this party is being thrown, there is a foreign military force outside of the gates, outside of the walls of Babylon. The Medes and the Persians are sitting outside of the walls looking for a way in, and everybody knows it. However, it is a holiday. One ancient historian, Herodotus, tells us that it was the evening of October 12th, 539 B.C., and the whole city was celebrating despite the presence of their enemies. And they were sort of lulled into this false confidence because the walls were, were 40 feet thick, or 40 feet high, excuse me, 25 feet thick, and, and, and was considered to be impenetrable. The, the river flowed underneath the walls of the city, and it, it seemed like they would never run out of resources. They had these giant hanging gardens. They grew all their food inside the, gar- inside the walls of the city. They had water as a never-ending supply coming in from the Euphrates River. They could, they could withstand anything, or so they thought. And so feasts of this sort were sort of common, and, and people decided with the face, in the face of their enemies, you know what, it's probably not that big of a deal, let's just let them hang out outside, we're going to have a party on the inside of the city. And these types of feasts were, were uh, common for kings. Various kings, including Alexander the Great and Xerxes, would throw feasts that fed thousands of people just like Belshazzar is doing here. Matter of fact, one such historical feast was recorded as lasting 180 days. It was a demonstration by the king of of, of power and of wealth and and the, the prominence of their kingdom. But remember, Belshazzar bears the title of king in the absence of the real king, Nabonidus, his father. We're told historically in 1924 that there was this, this, this inscription called the Persian verse where we're told that Nabonidus uh, left on a long journey and left his son in charge, and not too many people were happy about that. So the real king is still alive. He's just, he's just absentee. And, 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 and Belshazzar is in the palace, and he's really more like a teenager who saw an opportunity to throw a party when dad is gone. He decides to flex his newly gained authority and throw a rager at the palace. So, he invites over a few friends. A thousand or so. And he's got a few of the gals that he's been DMing on Instagram and TikTok. People are coming through the doors. They're throwing high fives to Belshazzar. Hey, Belshazzar, Shaz. You know, using all their pet names. And, you know, there's a rager happening on the inside. He has kegs in the courtyard. 
The champagne is on ice. There are rednecks everywhere. Miller High Life cans strewn about. Wait, no, I'm, I'm mixing it with my own childhood. I'm sorry. I grew up in the country, so. Listen, it, it's a raging party, and, and, and the drinking starts, and naturally, Belshazzar, who's the, hosting the party, is the one who's getting the craziest. Notice in verse 1, he drank wine in front of the thousand. Why is he drinking? He's showing off. Right? It's in front of the thousand people. Turns out, not much has changed in humanity. I'd be willing to bet that most of you have watched a scene like this play out on a smaller scale somewhere. However, as the night goes on, Belshazzar gets a little bit more sauced a little bit more bold, a little bit more defiant in the presence of his concubines, his multiple wives, and his lords. And so verse 2 tells us that when he had tasted the wine, here's the idea, when he had gotten himself a little bit inebriated, he commanded that the vessels of the temple be brought in. Now, the fact that he was drinking here is mentioned multiple times in the text. Uh, a friend of mine who took over our, the church that I came from in Cave Junction, he used to say, alcohol doesn't change who you are. It reveals who you are. Alcohol doesn't change who you are. It reveals who you are. You see, being inebriated takes away your ability to hide what is on the inside by removing inhibitions. So if you're a really happy person, that comes out. If you're a really sad person, that comes out. If you're a really angry person, that comes out. And what we see coming out of Belshazzar's heart is pride. One commentary I read notes that by taking the vessels from his own God's temple, he was not only being blasphemous and sacrilegious towards Yahweh, but he was also being blasphemous and, I, and, and sacrilegious towards his own idolatrous gods. He took what was dedicated to them and he treated it as common. He pulled stuff out of his own pagan temple and then is throwing a party, having everybody drink from it like it doesn't belong to one of his deities. So he's, he's just being belligerent here in this moment. He encourages his entire entourage to drink from these vessels. And then to add even more insult, they began to praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And, and these are gods that the prophets made fun of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They pointed out that, that, that to make one of these gods, these gods of wood or, or, or stone or whatever, you, you go out into the forest, you find a tree, and you, you cut it down by the sweat of your brow. And then you have to haul the tree home. So you cut off all the branches, but it's too heavy for you to haul home. So you have to employ a beast of burden, an ox or something, to drag the log back to your house. Then you get it back to your house, and you spend weeks and, or even months carving it into a God that you can worship. And, and, and the scraps of it, you burn in your fire. You cook your meal over the scraps of it. And then the other half, you stand up in the corner of your room and say, these are the gods who deliver us. 
And, 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 and the folks here are drinking from the vessels of the living God. The one so holy that no image can be made in his likeness. The one who transcends our understanding of creation because he is uncreated. They drink from the vessels dedicated to him and they praise the gods of wood and stone and gold and silver. It's an insane insult. Now with the holy vessels from the temple in their hands, they bless the false gods that they have crafted with their own hands. There's two major offenses against God that have taken place. The first is blasphemy, and the second is sacrilege. You see, blasphemy is is treating a holy God as common or, or with less reverence than he is due. Sacrilege, on the other hand, is trading the things dedicated to God as common. So blasphemy is is dishonoring God personally, but sacrilege is, is the dishonoring of the things consecrated to God. And Belshazzar has done both. He praised idols and dishonored God personally, and he also used the things of God for common purposes to drink and have a party. Now, those two sins, blasphemy and sacrilege, sometimes they're easy to spot. They're easy to see. Uh, the thing that comes to my mind is some years ago when Morgan Freeman was being, he was, he was asked, hey, are you a God-fearing man? And Morgan Freeman responded by saying, no, I don't fear anything. I am God. It's a reference to the fact that he plays God's voice in so many movies. But it's so blasphemous. Sacrilege is sometimes easy to spot. I think of 2013 when the Muslim Brotherhood defaced the Coptic churches and how sacrilegious that was, the defiling of things that belong to God. But sometimes these two sins are not as obvious. <coughs> They're not as easy to see. You see, blasphemy is a failure to take God seriously for who he is. It's a violation of the third commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, which says that we should not misuse the name of the Lord. Now, as, as, as Christians, we're, we're, we're not to use the name of God in a, any way that is insincere or careless. It's, it's a failure to care for the holiness and the reverence that is due to God. And while most of us, I think probably most people sitting in this room, would never use the name of God as a curse word, we may be guilty of things like typing OMG in our phone, in a text, or saying G's as a substitute for Jesus. Or sometimes you will hear people say holy crap as a substitute for the Holy Spirit without thinking about it. Sometimes we can use the names of God other than what he has given us in Scripture as a way of talking about him, calling him the man upstairs, the big guy, J.C., or Jesus CEO. Matter of fact, Paul, when we were talking about this earlier in the week during sermon prep or sermon review, uh, Paul reminded me that even sometimes in Christian circles, what you'll hear people say is, God told me. God said, 
And they use that as a way, it's a sort of trump card, right? To say, you can't argue with what I'm about to tell you because it was delivered to me by God. But did God really say? You better hope so. Because the way you're using his name is very close to blasphemous. If God did not say, be careful to not attribute it to him. Oftentimes that phrase is used as a way to strengthen your statements and manipulate others, but it's a form of blasphemy. By giving God names of our own making and assigning characteristics to him that God does not endorse, we sin against him. We define God in a way that he has not defined himself. And it's a problem, it's a sin. The second sin is sacrilege. Now, sacrilege in the Old Testament was clear. It was, it was the division between things that were common and things that were dedicated to God was revealed in, in the temple. It was the, the gates of the temple, the curtain of the temple, things that belonged to God were inside of that boundary. So it was fairly clear what was consecrated, what, what, what God owned. But when Jesus did away with the temple, didn't, didn't he do away with sacred things? Are there no holy things anymore? The answer is no. Rather than only some things being sacred, something radically shifted at the redemption made available through the cross, God began the work of redeeming everything that has been created unto himself so that everything that has been made will bring glory to God. He began that work at the cross. So now everything is sacred. Some examples. Work was just work. Now in Christ, work is worship. It's how we partner with God in, in bringing order to the chaos of the world. It's a part of how he provides for his people. It's a part of how he gets his work accomplished. It's a partnership. It's worship. Marriage is an expression of the covenant between God and his people. Our bodies even, and the care of our bodies. We, the, the scriptures tell us in the New Testament that we've been bought with a price and that we should glorify God with our bodies, with how we manage our bodies. Everything is sacred. We're not to treat the things consecrated unto God as common or unholy. You know, without a thought about it, Belshazzar has offended God by blasphemy and sacrilege. Now, here's the question. How does God respond? What's he going to do? I mean, obviously, there's been a, a period of time where God has let things slide with Belshazzar, but what will God do now in this moment? Well, I think of the words of Nebuchadnezzar, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God intervenes. In verses 5 through 9, we have a fearful confrontation with God. Let's read it together. In verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. This is one of my favorite verses, verse 6, in the entire Bible. I just love the description. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way. And his knees knocked together. He is completely freaked out. 
The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and, and, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Now it's interesting here to note that Belshazzar was being disrespectful towards his own false gods as well. And so uh, as it, it begs the question, well, who is he concerned about offending when the supernatural event happens? In Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it opens with the story of the transfer of the temple treasures to the gods of Babylon. So it tells us about how, how Nebuchadnezzar led the captives and, and he brought in the treasures of the temple. And once that transfer took place, they became the property of those deities. No Near Eastern king would have committed such sacrilege of, of taking the property of the gods and using them as common household items. This was an offense against his own deities and Yahweh. It's a boastful act under impaired judgment. And it was also a statement to try and look superior to the king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar only captured the vessels, Belshazzar could say. But I'm drinking from the vessels. Look at me. Look at what a king I am. Now, while Belshazzar would expect the wrath of the Babylonian deities, he could not anticipate the wrath of the defeated God of Israel to come down on him. In his mind, that God is ancient history. However, it's not ancient history to the author, to the narrator who pens this chapter, who twice tells us in this story that these were the vessels taken from God's temple who still carries in himself a deep reverence for the things of God, even while the people of God remain in captivity. You see, to the Jewish authors of the Bible, it was important to track the location of the temple artifacts. Matter of fact, this is what we see in the Old Testament. In, in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, and then also in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we see them making note of the fact that that though the temple had been burned, these artifacts had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar and had been preserved, though now in Babylon. Uh, consider Second Chronicles chapter 36. I, I'll, I'll read it to you. You don't have to go there. The, chronic, the chronicler pays special attention to the temple vessels as important. In Second Chronicles 36, verse 5, he says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. So he left some of the vessels of the temple behind. But then in a subsequent invasion, he comes in again, he burns the temple down, and he takes all of the treasure and all of the vessels with him to Babylon, and Chronicles also takes note of that. And the author here is making sure to note that though the temple had been destroyed, the vessels from the temple had survived, and these vessels are the only tangible remains of the people of Israel 
and their relationship and their worship of God. It is the only surviving connection to the history of worship after the captivity and after the diaspora, that moment when Israel was scattered. And, and, and Jeremiah picks up on this reality. There's this promise in Jeremiah chapter 27. If you, just real quickly, will you grab your Bibles, flip over to Jeremiah chapter 27. I, I want you to take a look at verses 16 to 22. Jeremiah 27, verse 16. This is Jeremiah prophesying here. So then I spoke to all this all this people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you. Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it is a lie that they're prophesying to you. So there were some prophets that were saying, hey, don't worry, the vessels are coming back. We're going we're gonna to worship Yahweh once again. And, and Jeremiah said, no, that's not true. They're going to be gone for 70 years. They're lying to you. Don't believe them. It says, verse 16, or 17, do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation? If they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and and, uh, in the house of the king of Judah and Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars and the sea, the stands and the rest of the vessels that are left in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and all the nobles in Jerusalem. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried away to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and I will restore them to this place. So listen. This prideful king now has pulled the vessels that are attached to the promises of God out and he's drinking from them. And God's like, that's it. I'm done with this. He intervenes in a radical way. Why? Because tied to the vessels of God is the future and hope that is promised to Israel. The promise that they would return and worship the Lord in the land that he had given them. And now, the hand of God has appeared to carve a personal message on the plaster of the wall to the one who dared to move God's vessels and use them as a common cup to toast the gods of Babylon. You know, it's interesting when you track the the hand of God in Scripture, several places where where it comes up. There are allusions to the hand of God throughout the scriptures. After the Egyptian sorcerers were not able to duplicate the supernatural plague of gnats, they said in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 to 19, this is the finger of God. When the Israelites came to Sinai and God wanted to make a covenant with them, it was the finger of God that that wrote the first set of tablets containing the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, inscribed by the finger of God. When the psalmist described the work of God in creation, he said in Psalm 8, verses 1 to 9, 
that the heavens were the work of his finger, the stars were the work of his fingers, the heavens the work of his hands. God's hands create. God's hands secure a relationship with his people. God's hands deliver them from oppression. The same hands that save, secure, and create also are the hands that judge righteously. And God is bringing judgment into Belshazzar's life. Why? Because as Nebuchadnezzar said, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You know, if you think about it, this hand of God theme, isn't this what we see in Jesus too? The hands that created bread for the hungry. They created limbs for the lame. The same hands that wrote in the sand so that a woman caught in adultery would be spared or touched the untouchable lepers and made them friends. The same hands that were nailed to the cross to purchase our redemption. The hands that invited doubting Thomas to touch and believe. The hands that even now bear the scars in heaven. These are the hands that are worthy to take the scroll and worthy to open the books and worthy to wield the scepter of justice in righteousness, the hands of Jesus. And these are the same hands that will point to the right or to the left as he speaks the words, either well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, or depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I have never known you. As the hand of God carves in the plaster, judgment is sure. The lamp stands in front of the hand and illuminates the hand as it writes. And Belshazzar can see. And when he sees this take place, the descriptions contained here are among my favorite in the Bible. He lost color. His thoughts alarmed him. He lost control of his limbs. His knees began to knock together. Why? Because those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Immediately, the king cries out to bring his cabinet of enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, to try and understand this writing on the wall. Now, we're not quite sure why it is that the wise men could not interpret or understand the writing on the wall. Scholars think that it's because the Aramaic was written without vowels and only consonants. And so... Um, as an example, if you take the letters J-N-R-D-T-H-B-K. J-N-R-D-T-H-B-K. You could come up with a sentence if you try and fill in the vowels. John rode the bike. Or it could be Jane read the book. Two different outcomes, Right? And that's how Aramaic was written. Now, let's remove all the spaces from J-N-R-D-T-H-B-K. Okay, now try and understand what is it saying. Additionally, in, in the painting of, of the Belshazzar's Feast by Rembrandt, he portrays the words as written vertically rather than horizontally. So now try and understand it then. You see, it gets very complicated to try and interpret the meaning of this. Additionally, the words don't actually make a sentence. They're just nouns. So even if you read them, there's still no context for their meaning. It's not a full sentence. It takes the interpretation of Daniel. 
Later on, when Daniel interprets what is written, he will read the three nouns, but then interpret them by three corresponding verbs at the end of the chapter. Now, regardless of the promise of reward, the wise men of Babylon are not able to interpret this. They're not able to understand. This is the same pattern that's been happening, right? The, the, the wise men are called. They, hey, help me understand. They're like, we don't know. We can't do it. But then Daniel comes in. God works miraculously and revelation happens. That's the pattern that's happened over and over again in the scriptures and in the book of Daniel. So when Belshazzar can't interpret the words, he becomes more fearful, more frantic, and the remainder of the text is broken up by three speeches. The first one's from the king, then there's a a speech from Belshazzar, and then finally from Daniel at the last half of the chapter. In verses 10 to 12, we see the unexpected reminder of God from the queen. Verse 10, he says this, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Now, get this. Here comes mommy. Right? She's like, oh, Belshazzar. Oh, you look so upset here. Right? She comes in to comfort him. Don't let your thoughts be alarmed. Um, Verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father... Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called. And he will show you the interpretation. So here we have the the queen's speech here. Uh, Remember, this is the queen mother because his wives and concubines are already at the party. She is brought in uh, after the fact. Now, word is apparently spread throughout the palace. Some time has passed because he's had to call the enchanters and they don't come up with any answers. She gets word. She comes in. She's like, oh, Belshazzar, don't, don't be so scared. Don't be so freaked out. Now, in verse 11, she calls Nebuchadnezzar his father as a title, like predecessor. And I want you to take note of the fact that she mentions Nebuchadnezzar as being Belshazzar's father three times in the text and twice right next to each other. When the queen mentions Daniel, we're left puzzled by the fact that Belshazzar doesn't know about Daniel and has to be reminded of Daniel's role, even though he's like this really famous figure in Babylonian history. And his dealings with Nebuchadnezzar are are, are very famous. So Later in this chapter, Daniel indicts the king for his failure to learn from history. And some scholars think that there may be a tone of veiled sarcasm from the queen mother here to Belshazzar to say, "Uh, you would know who Daniel is if you were actually worthy of being a successor to Nebuchadnezzar. She's, She's sort of capping on him right now. And there's also evidence in the text to suggest that Belshazzar was aware of Daniel but didn't honor him. And that he's still trying to puff himself up. So unexpectedly, Daniel is once again brought to the forefront of the affairs of Babylon. This time it is the testimony of the queen that pulls him out of retirement and back into the king's court. And then in verses 13 to 16, we see Belshazzar's rude request of God's servant. 
Verse 13, then Daniel was brought before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles. I'm the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, then you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I want you to imagine for a moment the, the moment where Daniel comes walking in. He walks in. There's Miller High Life cans everywhere. It's been a crazy party. There are Instagram models in the corner. And, you know, it's, it's a rowdy scene and a freaked out king. And he walks in. He sees the writing on the wall. I love the way Pete Ulrich described it this last week as we were talking about this passage. He said he probably walked in and looked at the wall and was like, oh, this guy's smoked. He's done. Right? It's It's over. And now, imagine the moment that Daniel has laid his eyes on what is written on the walls. As he sees the judgment of God and understands the interpretation, maybe he reflected on the words of Nebuchadnezzar who said, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. When Daniel appears, Belshazzar asks if he is one of the people taken captive from Judah, probably an insult, referring to the fact, hey, remember, you're still a slave. You do what I want. I'm the king, right? He's flexing on Daniel, and Daniel doesn't give in to it for one moment. Scholar Dana uh, Nolan Fuel gives a couple of reasons why Belshazzar may be treating Daniel this way. He's looking like a, a small man with a big attitude. Belshazzar was overtly sh has overtly shunned Daniel because Daniel is a symbol of his father's regime. First of all, Daniel, being in exile, falls into the same category as do the temple vessels. They were, they were brought from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the father. And Daniel, like the vessel, symbolizes the success of Nebuchadnezzar, a success that Belshazzar would like to belittle. And secondly, Daniel was respected and admired by ne Nebuchadnezzar's administration. And what Belshazzar has attempted to show with the vessels, he is now attempting to show with Daniel what is important to his father is not important to him, and yet God is going to intervene. And in the words of Nebuchadnezzar, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Throughout the first half of this chapter, we've seen the pride of this wannabe king. And there's one encouragement that we can all take away from this, and that is... To learn from him that when God reveals his hand, it's already too late. You should have folded beforehand. If you knew the cards he was holding, you would have yielded to his authority before that time. I love what it says in Psalm 32, verse 9. We were discussing this in our Tuesday men's Bible study. God says, be not like the horse or the mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. See, don't be stubborn like an ox or mule. Trust me. Submit to me. God does not want to have the kind of relationship with us where everything is a fight. 
the desire to do God's will, the humility to surrender, this is one of the critical aspects of our, our discipleship to Jesus. Matter of fact, we've identified that in our discipleship uh, understanding that willing submission to God is a key marker of our maturity as disciples. And when you drill down on the underlying desire for virtually every sin, doesn't it come down to this? I want to do it my way. I don't want to have to depend on God at all. It's pride. I can handle things myself. I can make my own rules. I can have it all. I can, I can bear spiritual fruit without having to be attached to the vine. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. You see, Belshazzar is like us all. We've all sinned. We're those who have profaned the name of God, who have boastfully thought that our own strength has prevailed against the judge of all the earth. But trust me when I say this. Standing before the Almighty is a fearful thing that will cause all of our knees to knock together. We live in humble dependence upon God for life, for water, for food, for a heartbeat. But even more than that, we can't know him without him revealing himself to us. We're dependent upon him for revelation. We can't be saved apart from him saving us. We're dependent upon him for salvation. We, we, we can't be sanctified and made more like Jesus without the activity of the Holy Spirit, God working in us. And we will never reach our state of glorification without the miraculous intervention of God himself. From start to finish, we can do none of it apart from him. So what do we do? Well, the only thing that we can do is be humbled. Stand before God. Before he has to call our bluff. Before he has to show his hand. We come under the mighty hand of God and we give thanks for his work on our behalf. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that humility is essential as a character quality. And not just the feigned humility that puts on a show that tries to make ourselves look like less than what we are, but the real humility that sees us as we actually are, that sees that we are living in humble dependence upon you for everything. Father, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can float on going to church and, you know, looking spiritual on the outside for a season, but no spiritual fruit happens in the energy of our flesh. It takes humble dependence upon you. We can feign and put on costumes that look like love and joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit. But the real substance of those things is formed in us by the presence of the Spirit and our yielding to His work in our lives. So God, would you shape us? In humility, we recognize our dependence upon you today. May you never have to show us your hand in the same way that you showed it to Belshazzar. In Jesus' name, amen.